This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. Today on Late Boomers, we welcome as our guest, Samantha Paris, a multiple award-winning voice actor, acclaimed educator, entrepreneur, and author of Finding the Bunny, The Secrets of America's Most Influential and Invisible Art, revealed through the struggle of one woman's journey. And I'm Mary Elkins. We'll talk to Samantha about her voice actor training studio based in San Francisco and how she came to find her philosophy that talent can be taught. She was a very successful voice actor who found she had the ability to teach and thereby create many other voice actors. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me. And first of all, for any of our listeners who may not know, please tell us what a voice actor is. Well, a voice actor is somebody that uh, earns their living using their voice for every single kind of platform you can think about. First of all, I don't think people realize anymore just how many times a day you hear voices, but you don't actually see the person providing the voice at that moment. So it's, you know, it's, it's uh, doing voices for commercials, for cartoons, video games, audio books, audio tours, talking toys. Gosh, people are paid thousands and thousands of dollars just to be the voice of a company where you're te- you're being asked to press one or press two. Oh, yeah. Oh, gee. Um, and then you just think of, you know, all sorts of different types of tutorials. You, know, you, you name it. Every single time you hear a voice, whether it's coming out of your computer, your TV, your car. I love the voice in my car. I'll push the, you know, uh, call Andre. And the lady says, would you like to call Andre? Friendly. <laughs> call Andre. And I find myself saying, yes. <laughs> because she's so soothing. Exactly. I know I was prepping for this and reading your book and stuff. And I was driving in, in a loner car that had FM radio and I was listening to a station that I hadn't heard in years uh, in Los Angeles and it was a station founded when my daughter was in middle school and I'm going and it's and it has no DJs and it has the one voice it's the Jack FM and he's like it's that voice and I went oh my gosh I haven't heard this since I was driving my daughter to school and she's 31 now, and this is the same voice. It's the same guy. So he's been doing it, I figured out, at least 17 years. <laughs> what a gig. When people, when, when, when people get into voiceover, I'm telling you, all of us actors absolutely adore it. I've been doing voiceover myself for 45 years. You're not that old. <laughs> I am. I'm 60 years old, about to be 61 in June. No way. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so I started when I was 15, and um, I mean, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't just absolutely adore my job and just feel so much gratitude for the fact that I'm, you know, doing this crazy thing called. That leads into something I wanted to ask you, which was what was your early life like, and how did you develop the dream of becoming an actor and a voice actor? Okay, well, first of all, I was born and raised in L.A., So, um, and like, so like a lot of uh, people in Los Angeles, you dream of being a, you know, I always dreamt of being a famous movie star. And this goes back to being, you know, like five years old. And I did the dancing lessons and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, 
And I kept badgering my, my parents that I wanted to go to acting school, that I wanted to be an actress, but they just kind of, I don't know if it's because they wanted me to have a normal childhood. I, I don't know, but they just, they kept, kept it at bay. Well, radio is in our background. My grandfather on my father's side, he was actually known as the very first disc jockey. He created radio. His no. name was, yeah, his name was Martin Block, and he had a show in New York called the Make Believe Ballroom. And so that's initially how disc jockeys came to be. Was it ballroom, swing dance, big band? Yes, that's exactly correct. And then I had my, my stepfather uh, was also a disc jockey in Los Angeles. So radio was, was in our background, but I, I wasn't interested in any of that. I wanted to be an actress, right? So anyway, one day, sitting at the dining room table, 15 years old, my parents announced to me that um, they're going to take me to a voiceover class. And I'm like, voiceover? What's that? And when it was <laughs> explained to me that it was just going to be using my voice for commercial, back then it was pretty much just commercials and cartoons. I mean, that's, that's aside from the guy that would go, this is Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. <laughs> that there yeah. is a yeah. kid. Um, I mean, that's, that's all there was. So when, when they said, well, it's just using your voice for cartoons or commercials, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. When I watched Fred Flintstone, when I would watch Fred Flintstone, when I would watch the Flintstones as a kid, Fred Flintstone, it was like, I thought it was Fred Flintstone. I wasn't equating that there was an adult voice behind it doing this character. I'm just, you know, watching the Flintstones. So mm -hmm. anyway, so when I discovered that uh, I was not going to be seen and it was just going to be my voice. You know, I threw my napkin on the table and went down the hall pouting and said, I don't want to do it. And, you know, and then that Saturday, I'm sitting in the back seat of my parents' car, you know, typical 15 year old pouting, blah, blah, blah. So we go into the studio and I get behind the microphone for the very first time. My life was changed, like forever changed in that moment. That's so amazing that they could turn that quickly. Yeah, I mean, and I still pursued on-camera work. I did a lot of on-camera commercials and I did episodic television and, and stuff like that, but it was so funny. Um, this is part of what I talk about uh, in the book uh, about finding your bunny and, and enjoying your life's journey and, and being open to the journey. Um, I so badly thought I wanted to be an actress, you know, a famous actress. But yet anytime I was on the set and I was working, I was never getting as much enjoyment as I was when I was doing my voice acting behind the microphone. I actually felt uncomfortable. I was always nervous. It's like, I didn't like it, but I kept pursuing it because I had made up my mind at age five that that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, and you're very driven. <laughs> yes. And so I just, you know, I, I also didn't really have, um, I didn't have a support system. I didn't have a real thick skin. So the rejection was very difficult for me. I was constantly being told that I was apps when I would audition, that I was absolutely the best actress, but that I wasn't pretty enough. These were in the days of, you know, Charlie's Angels, you know, the fair yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, so I was constantly being, you know, w when you're a teenager in your early 20s and you're constantly being told you're not enough, like whatever that not enough is. Yeah, it's devastating. That's, that's, yeah, you're too pretty, you're not pretty enough. Yeah. And you're too thin, um, you're too fat. Oh, we've all of us have heard a version of all of that because Mary and I have done the acting thing and. I'm still in it. So I, ju I just almost finished with your book, Finding the Bunny, and I'm really enjoying it. And I'm right at the end. And I'm mm -hmm. just so frustrated that I didn't quite get finished before we talked. But I was once actually a Playboy bunny at the Los Angeles club. And we would they would give us the magazine every month. Some of the girls were in it. I wasn't in it. But we knew about that little finding. There was a little Playboy bunny hidden on the cover. 
And I had forgotten about that until I read the description in your book, how you had access to the magazine and stuff. But tell us about how you coined that phrase for your students and what it means to you. Okay, so going back to when I was young, and I was, I was kind of touching upon it that I just, you know, I, I come from a really dysfunctional family. There wasn't a whole lot of support. Um, and as a matter of fact, just for one second, going back to what we were saying before, with all the rejection I would get in the on-camera world, it made me more determined to be better at voice acting because mm -hmm. I ultimately figured out that whereas you can't, you know, there's nothing we can do about our outwardly physical features, right? We are who we are. But in voice acting, you can be anything. And so what I loved about voice acting was that it was a form of acting where I could 100% control my destiny, that it would be totally about my talent, my mm -hmm. skills, and nothing else. So to answer your question, even though when I started at age 15, I hadn't been subjected yet to, you know, all of the the, the pains and frustrations of the on-camera world, I still was smart enough to know that there was actually nothing special about my voice. There still isn't, in that I don't have a classically deep voice or textured voice, naturally sexy, sophisticated kind of voice. I always make the joke with my students that I have the voice that sells toilet bowl cleaner. You know, uh -huh. I feel like, teen girl, average mom, you know, et cetera. So I had figured that out somehow very early at age 15, that if I was gonna earn my living as a voice actor, even in voiceover, I was gonna have to act better than anyone. Mm -hmm. And what I figured is that it all came down to script interpretation. What could I possibly see in the script that no one else is going to see? What can I bring to that piece of copy, remaining authentic and true to myself, but what could I bring to that piece of copy that nobody else is going to be able to do? And so what I was doing was searching for the bunny. I remembered when I was you know, like in my book, right? I talk about being like eight years old. My brother's 11. He's allowed to have the Playboy centerfold, you know, plastered all over his bedroom. <laughs> I would sit on the bed, on his bed, searching for that bunny on the cover, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's being like eight or nine years old. Now cut to I'm 15, not too, too long a, uh, a time. And there I was doing the same thing. I was like looking for the bunny. What was that special thing in the copy that I can do? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what started. And then ultimately it branched into, of course, it's a wonderful metaphor for, for life, right? Find, finding that bunny in your life. I mean, this being uh, late bloomers, you know, the, the name of your podcast, I have so many students that are into their third chapters, fourth chapters, fifth chapters, and each chapter, each career, you know, that that could either be, I mean, if, if they if they love their careers, then that then, then terrific. And they found their bunny and and now they're looking for yet another one. Um, or I have a lot of students that aren't happy with the direction their life has gone and they're not happy with their jobs and they are trying to find their voice, find their bunny. Yeah. And so that it is a really finding the bunny, you know, as far as my school is concerned, is a really loaded expression. I love that. Please tell us how your voice track teaching studio in San Francisco came to be and why San Francisco was the location you chose. And you said you grew up in LA. So what was the... Um, what was the thinking behind that? Okay, so my school is actually not in San Francisco. It's just right over the Golden Gate Bridge in a wonderful little town called Sausalito. Yes. Oh, Sausalito. So, yeah. 
So, okay, yes, born and raised in LA, but I had a grandmother that lived up in Northern California and we used to visit her, you know, in, in, in the summertime. And we always used to go into the city and we always used to drive over the bridge and I was so enamored with that Golden Gate Bridge. I loved it. Just, I mean, to this day, I've, I've lived in the Bay Area for over 30 years and, and Every time I drive over the bridge, it's just, it's such a thrill. So it I, is. I, you know, as, as an actor, I, you know, I, I love what I, living in Los Angeles, I love doing voiceover, I love what I do, but I didn't like LA. I hmm. always dreamt of living by the Golden Gate Bridge. And so when I was 28 years old, um, uh, I was getting divorced the first time. I'm on number three. This is it. I had just gotten divorced in there and I never had, I, we didn't have children. There was really nothing keeping me there, of course, except my career. But I just, I just didn't want to live there. And I, something was telling me there was a voice inside me saying I needed to move. I needed to follow my heart. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunately successful. I had enough money to move up there. I didn't really have a plan. I knew that there was voiceover work happening in San Francisco. And, um, and also the fax machine had just been invented. <laughs> Very important. Well, <laughs> so I knew that my San Francisco agents could fax me auditions and I could record them on a cassette, <laughs> FedEx that cassette down to Los Angeles, right? Crazy, mm -hmm. right? Um, plus, I knew that there, I knew that there was work in San Francisco as well. So, I mean, it was kind of crazy. It's just like being young and not really having a plan, except I was just listening to that voice inside me. So I moved up there. I bought a home about ten minutes from where. The studio in Sausalito is, and um, and then all of a sudden one day out of the blue, uh, within about like three four months of me being there, somebody called me on the phone and said, "Oh, I understand you teach voiceover." <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, "I don't teach," and it was actually my my former husband Tom Pinto who said, "Yeah." Uh, Call, call Samantha and um, she'll teach you. So I called Tommy on the phone and I said, then this is in my book too, I think you remember. It's like, Tommy, what the hell did you say that for? Why are you saying I teach voiceover? He taught voiceover, I didn't. And he says, because I know you can do it. I know you, you'll make a great teacher and you know, blah, blah, blah. So I started with my first student, Tom Applebaum. And before I knew it, one student became two, two became four, four became 10. Um, then 30, then 40, I start getting all these letters now from the students thanking me, saying that they're booking more, you know, a lot more jobs, but also how they're just learning so much about themselves, discovering so much, you know, just about themselves personally. And these letters kept coming in. And I remember saying to Andre, now Andre and I are married, I'm like, honey, look at these letters. Like, like what do you think this means? Like, is there a newspaper story here or is there? And he says, well, yeah, you need a publicist. I said, a publicist? I'm not famous. Only famous people have publicists. And he's <laughs> like, well, how do you think business stories get in the newspaper? And then he also added, of course, you'd have to actually read a newspaper to even notice. And I was like, yeah, 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 Andre, okay, point well taken. Anyway, so I got a publicist. Next thing I knew, I was on, I was in, um, you know, the San Francisco Examiner, the San Francisco Chronicle. I was asked to go on um, a television talk show called People Are Talking. Um, I went on Ron Owens' radio show. He was, he had a, a, a talk show with over a million listeners. And anyway, literally within a matter of, from the time I got the publicist, I had like, I had one, one week immediately with all of this PR and my phone starts ringing and it's, it's ringing so much that Andre and I can't even answer the telephone. It's just nonstop ringing. I kept putting 
you know, those little cassettes from the answering machines. I just <laughs> putting these cassettes in the machine. And next thing I knew, I had to hire someone to transcribe all of it. And I'll, just, I'll never forget looking at Andre and going, what have I done? <laughs> I thought I was going to just teach a few people, you know, and then and do my acting. And the next thing I knew, I mean, I, I had hundreds and hundreds of students. I thought, what the heck am I going to do with all these people? And so that's how the school initially started. It was not my plan. And I know you developed an amazing curriculum and you brought in guest teachers to handle some of the load, but the excruciating schedule you were maintaining that's described in your book was pretty harrowing. You know, the privates and the classes at night and all that. And Very... it, still, it still happens to this day, but there's a big difference. You see, for so many years, I was fighting the universe. I kept thinking, you know, there was still, I mean, I, I didn't give up the, the, the on-camera thing until, you know, fully, until maybe in my, you know, early 30s. But even the, even the voiceover, I mean, I, I, of course, I love doing it, and I still do a little to keep my toe, you know, in it, just to make sure that I'm always current, you know, et cetera. But it was very hard to have what, what I still have today, which is the largest academy of its kind in the United States. Mm. We have classes morning, noon, and night, seven days a week. And I oh. teach a lot of them. I'm still teaching, you know, like eight hours a day. It's a lot. And then trying to also have my voiceover career on top of that. And struggle for so many years is I didn't really fully appreciate what I had in this business, in, you know, in having the business. And when I finally listened to the universe and really listened, I realized I was not put on this planet to even do voice acting. I was put on this planet to guide, to teach, to mentor, to love, to support, to be all the things for my students that I never had. And it took me until I was 50 years old to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And I then called my agents on the phone and said, you know, if people request me, which again, of course, I mean, I had a career for so many years. If people request me, but I don't have to audition. You know, if somebody wants me to do something, of course, I'll do it. But other than that, I'm hanging it up. How many students do you, would you say that you've had over the years? I've got to be approaching 15 to 18,000. Yeah, that's quite a number. Yeah. And how many successful working voice actors would you say there are in the U.S. right now? Oh, are you kidding? There's thousands upon thousands of people. We, we have oh. to decide, you know, what, I mean, if you want to, what's success, like $100,000 a year or more? Yeah, you tell me. Thousands, thousands upon That's thousands. That's great. Thousands. Yeah. And then, you know, there are, you know, not thousands, but there are certainly hundreds that make seven figures a year hmm. doing this. Um, I thought the question was going to be how many successful students have, have I churned out? Oh, and, and what that's my, a good question. Well, no, because what my response was going to be is, well, it depends on how we define success. Exactly right, because some of them you talk about in the book don't go on to be great voice actors, but they find themselves or they find their bunny or they find what they came to look for. They change right. their lives. Exactly. I mean, of course, I, I, I've had I have hundreds of success stories. There's, there's no question about that. But um, and I'm and I, you know, any any success my students have, I'm, I'm thrilled for. But I, I have to say I'm more moved by the more personal success stories. Perfect case in point. This is such a typical class. This happened the other night. I was teaching a class um, that uh, 
no, 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 it wasn't me. It was my associate, Vicky. That's right. Um, she was she was teaching a class called Know Your Zero. And what that class is about is first discovering, like just who you naturally are behind the microphone, you know, like what your natural voice print is. Like I said, I sound like mom, right? So if a script calls for mom, well, I don't have to worry that much about like, oh, trying to sound like a mom or something, because it's just, it's already naturally in my voice. So it's understanding your zero. So what we do in this class, um, and again, Vicki was teaching, is she gets the students to describe themselves. So for example, Mary, if, if I had to play the character Mary, okay, I have to play you, what are some of the words you would use to describe yourself so that I would know how to play the character? Oh, that's a hard question. I mean, how many of us really do know ourselves that well? Bingo. Wow. Welcome <laughs> to the world of voice acting and what you discover about yourself. And so what happened the other night in class, there was um, a, a woman by the name of Sandy, and she's uh, like in her mid-70s, and so sweet. And as she was beginning to use different adjectives to describe herself, one of the ones she used, she said, well, and I'm shy. And then all of a sudden she stopped. She went, wait a minute. Damn it, no, I'm not. I'm not shy. I'm bashful. And in her mind, bashful, actually, I agree, is very different than shy. So shy was something she was always ashamed of. And yet what she realized is because shy in her mind, I think, means timid, means, you know, like, how could you possibly, if you're shy, do something so brave as to study voice acting, right? Mm -hmm. Taking these classes that she came to the reality of, no, I'm not shy. I'm bashful. There was another kid in the class who would ask the same question, uh, like a, a younger guy in his late 20s, early 30s, kind of like you, Mary. He said, well, I don't really know who I am. And Vicky said, really, why? And he said, well, because I change who I am depending on who I'm with in the room. Ooh. And all of a sudden, the whole class went silent. And Vicky said, Maddie, have you ever shared that before? He says, no, it just came out. I just learned that about myself right at this very minute. Wow. Okay. That's yeah. what this acting is about. It's really digging deep. It's, it's a whole self-discovery. And so when people have these types of, of discoveries, it goes back to, so how do, how do you measure success? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so and it happens every day. <laughs> every day in the life of voice tracks, people are having self-discovery. <laughs> self so We're always just trying to discover ourselves, I think, until the end, because we're changing all the time. But there's also something about the microphone, and you guys were talking um, uh, about on-camera work and, you know, having some experience with that. I'm, I'm sure you can... You know, when you're doing a monologue or you're doing a scene, you know, that camera doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. It's going to be able to smell out whether, you know, you're really being in the moment, you're really being authentic. And the, yeah, the truth. Right. Well, it's the same thing with that microphone. Mm -hmm. Microphone does not lie. Wow. You're talking about voice actors and the people that you've taught and the people that have been successful do I know a lot of celebrities do voice acting as well as on camera and do they pose a problem for people who are specializing only in voice acting well yes yes and no um you know celebrities have been around doing voiceover for gosh at this point you know, time flies. I would, I would have to say 25, 30 years. It's just, we hear about it more, you know, in, in, in the media now. Mm -hmm. But um, it's always been, well, not always, but uh, yeah, I'd say probably for like the last 30 years, when it comes to animation, you know, the feature films, 
Yes. Oh, it yeah. A big chunk out of that. So it's always the celebrities that get the leading role. And then the working stiffs like me get all of the uh, incidental parts. <laughs> when <laughs> I was growing up, you know, I mean, every young girl, I think, dreamed of being, you know, the, the next Disney princess, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So celebrities did take that over. And there's always been um, celebrities that endorse products, right? But they obviously uh, command a much bigger salary. And a lot of clients don't have that kind of money to pay. So yes, a producer can pay, you know, $10 million for George Clooney, or he can pay, you know, somebody like myself, um, you know, $100,000 a year to do the same thing. Right? Which is very nice as well. Well, see, that's the thing, you know, it's all relative. You, you know, again, going back to the, um, I have a voice that sells toilet bowl cleaner. I literally did do, it's probably about 10 years ago or so, I can't remember now. 15 years ago, a commercial for Tylex. And so it was an on-camera on commercial. It was like a talk show about bathrooms. So there was like <laughs> an, an Oprah kind of character and I was the caller. And so, in, you know, so all I did was say, I hate scrubbing scuzzy mildew. <laughs> all I said, all right? It took me longer to park my car. I went into the studio and went, I hate scrubbing scuzzy mildew. Ugh, I hate scrubbing scuzzy mildew. I hate scrubbing scuzzy mildew. You know, boom, boom, boom. Leave the studio. Well, in the first year, I think I made eighty thousand dollars just saying I hate I hate scrubbing scuzzy mildew. Oh my god! For <laughs> forty thousand dollars for five words. Oh, <laughs> that's right. very enticing. Um, and, and I still, I'm thinking about your book, and I'm also a writer now. And I'd love to hear the journey that you experienced in writing your memoir. <laughs> um, very, very similar to how my business started, which was, it hit me broadsided. Uh, you know, I, it wasn't a plan in that um, only having a high school education and never liking school I never thought I could write a book, for starters. Plus, you know, you, you, again, you believe all the negative stuff that people would tell you when you were growing up. And I was constantly, you know, criticized because I didn't read. I always had my nose in the television watching TV. And, you know, anyway, um, so I knew I wanted to, quote unquote, write a book. Uh, I felt, first of all, like I needed to. How do you devote? your entire adult life to teaching and you don't have a book. Mm -hmm. um, plus, mm -hmm. I really wanted to, I wrote it initially for my students. I just wanted them to really know, know me better, know my struggles and, and, and all of my challenges because they come to me with their struggles and challenges. And I really wanted them to know we're all the same. We all have our stuff, right? And so, you're using real names in there, right? Mostly. Mostly. I just wondered about that um, teacher that was very abusive when yeah, you were I 17. I did not use his I had a feeling that wasn't his name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nina Folk, I know, is a big teacher and stuff. I, kn I knew there were plenty of real names. Right. And, your, and your people that work for you, I think they're all real names. Yeah. Yeah. The only th two people that were really ho horrific that I thought, eh, I don't know, I'm not going to name them. So, yeah. Yeah, I get it. Every, everybody else I just, I love and it's their names. How long did it take you to write the book? Well, okay, so, so what happened was I didn't think I could write it. So I hired a ghostwriter. Mm -hmm. And we went through quite a process um, to find the ghostwriter. And uh, first I was told, oh, you need a book strategist. Someone that you'll talk to. Talk to what is a book it. strategist? Well, you know what? I have no idea. All I can tell you <laughs> is I spent $5,000 for nothing and, you know, got rid of the book strategist. Um, but then I uh, hired a ghostwriter and uh, he wrote the first 30 pages. Really nice guy. But it was horrible. It was, it, it, it sounded like a, um, 
like a detective novel from the 50s. Hmm. So and it's not, not at all your voice. Terrible. And so the thing is, is that my whole school knew I was writing a book because the ghostwriter was interviewing students, etc. So I'm thinking, oh my God, this isn't going to work. And the whole school knows I'm writing a book. So it was like gunpoint ahead. I guess I have to write my own book. <laughs> I was not planning on it. But funny enough, I sat, you know, I, I sat down and started to write and it just poured out of me. And so this is going back, um, what, around 2003 or four, I think. Um, guys, I didn't even know how to type. Oh. I didn't know how to use, a, you know, type. I, I have a whole staff that, that types, that sends emails, that, you know, I was doing the hunting and pecking. I had never even made a Word doc. When <laughs> I started writing the book, I knew how to email. And I, I know on a computer how to record my voice and save it and send the recording off. And, you know, so anything yeah. that's with that. You're but, on a need to know basis with all that stuff. So when I was first writing the book, I was actually sending myself emails until one of my team members helped me, you know, taught me how to, you know, make a document, et cetera. To this day, I can tell you, I still don't know how to cut and paste. <laughs> I wrote the whole book not having to cut and paste. Amazing. That's how much it just poured out of me. And your descriptions are excellent. You did a great job with them. Yeah. But you, and tell us about, you also do mentoring of your students. And do you feel that's the most rewarding or do you prefer the dynamics of teaching a class? They're both so vitally important. You know, I don't really know where one, one stops and the other begins. I mean, first of all, the mentoring, quite honestly, is going on right there in the classroom, um, whether it's a private lesson or, um, or class. But uh, like I said, I didn't have any support um, growing up in this industry. And I firmly believe that to be successful, you can't go it alone. You just can't. True. And um, so I, I, I mean, I, I thrive on it. I mean, that's why, you know, again, you know, from the book, I just actually, I just finished three days ago. We have, oh, we offer nearly a hundred different courses in a six month period of time. And every time we do registration, I can't, I mean, I feel it's probably my type A personality, but I feel like how could the students possibly know what they should take, what they should do? And so every six months, I fill out a guidance form. I literally prioritize what classes I think they should take in the next term. I write each student a handwritten letter telling them what I want them to work on, you know, telling them I love them. Maybe I'll make fun of some dorky thing they recently did in a class. But so I, I write a handwritten letter to each student. I do about four or five an hour. And this last go around, I had 319 to do. Oh my goodness. And I do that every six months. Yeah, that was well detailed in the book. And I thought, oh my God, there must be an easier way. Maybe you could record your voice telling them what to take. <laughs> yeah, but you know, <laughs> no, there's something, look at when was the yeah. last time yeah. you actually got a handwritten note from somebody? Oh, that's so true. Recently, because yeah. I have wonderful friends like Mary that send them all the time. Thank you notes, yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you notes. But, but nothing like lovely. what you do. That's amazing. Yeah. So the, the mentoring is, is vitally important, and especially because people, you know, their journeys change. And, you know, they want help, they want advice, they want guidance. Um, I don't take lightly just how much trust each student places in me. It's a huge responsibility, but I'm, I'm, I'm honored that they place their trust in me, so I don't want to let them down. That's why this is really, you know, it's my job, but it's, it's absolutely my, my passion, my life's work. My, this is why I was put on this planet. And, um, you know, I have a lot of sleepless nights. 
you sound like the most wonderful guide, guidance counselor and teacher. And we hear that your book has been optioned for a TV series. That's really exciting. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I was absolutely shocked when Warner Brothers called me and said, you know, that they wanted to option the book. A, again, we have to go back to, I didn't even think I could write a book, right? And now a major television um, studio is wanting to option it. But I have to say that when I wrote it, because I did grow up glued to the television, um, as I was writing the book, and this is what happens in voiceover too. Voiceover is very visual. Okay, I'm gonna digress just for a second. You know when you read a book and then you watch the film version? Nine times out of 10, what do you like better? The book. The book, of course. Why? Because you've imagined everything a certain way. This was particularly true of Harry Potter. Oh my God, they just ruined Harry Potter for me. Oh yeah. So we're, but so many. Right, so we're, we're painting our own pictures, right? As we're reading, we're, we're visualizing. Okay, so, and voiceover is the same thing. That's what I'm saying. It's not about getting behind the microphone and selling ads. With every script, you have to visualize who you are, where you are, who you're talking to, and why are you saying what you're saying? What is your intention, all right? So you have to completely create the world in your mind as the voice actor. Well, because I've been doing this since I was 15 years old, that's how I wrote the book. I was visualizing my life as, as like it was on TV. You know, you were saying like that my descriptions were nice. So in other words, as they I was, really are very good. I was like going, okay, I'm writing this scene right now. What would it look like on television? Because that's all I could relate to. A, because I grew up doing nothing but watching television and B, a voice actor. So getting back to Warner Brothers, I mean, I was elated. I was shocked. I was all sorts of things, but I also wasn't surprised because I was visualizing it as a television series as I was writing it. Mm -hmm. Really good idea. Yeah. So if, if we as laymen want to be voice actors, what would be the first thing you'd tell us? Um, what would be the first thing I'd tell you? If we were in your class for the first time. That you can do it. That you can do it. That I have never in 33 years had one single student where if this is what they wanted to do, I've never had a student not succeed. But you have to want it. I'm always telling people that the one thing I can't do, I can't create, I can't give you the passion. This is why I've never advertised. Or, you know, like somebody will wait on me in a restaurant, they have a beautiful voice and I say, oh, you know, oh, you have a great voice, here, here's my card. Like, I've never done that. People find me, right? Because there's this little voice inside them that, you know, is drawn to it, or at least has a curiosity. So my first goal with students is to satisfy the curiosity, to really let them know what it's about, what they're gonna be getting into. Um, this is what I do in my, my uh, introductory lectures. So um, we, we explore our voices behind the microphone and you know, so I really give people a taste of what it's about. And then it's really kind of, it's up to you. I'm always telling my students that you have, you have to want to do it. You have to love it. If you love it, you and I are going to go on a journey together and I'm going to turn you into a voice actor. Hmm. And that is exactly what I've done. And, you know, and I, I, I have so many examples of people with real challenges coming into this that, that I've turned into voice actors. One of my students many years ago, uh, she was a teenage girl. Her name is Dion Kwan. She came to me, I think, age 13. She was blind. She is blind, all right? Wow. So I had to teach her, obviously, via Braille, right? I had never taught a blind person, but I thought, well, why not, right? So she would Braille her scripts, and at first, I mean, I don't even know, 
blind people are so remarkable to me how they, you know, how they do the braille. Well, so she would get behind the microphone and she was brailing, but of course she was speaking rather slowly. You know, she'd say, I really love the French fries at McDonald's. I went there with my friends. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's fine. You're brailing, but ultimately you're gonna need to learn to move that braille quicker. I went to, I, uh, I really love McDonald's French fries. I went there with my friend, right? You can imagine like how fast the braille has to be. So it's, we, we took quite a while just getting her fingering fast enough. But then the problem was I could hear her fingering on the microphone. Oh. So then it was, you know, creating this feather light touch, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? She went on to become one of the rugrats. Oh, really? That's a great story. And, I, and that's, there's so many stories like that. And that's the thing. I think it's like this in any profession, anything in life. If you're passionate and you work hard, you succeed. Mm -hmm. That is so true. And I was really interested in your book about the cruise you went on and how it changed your whole attitude about yourself. And it was during that time you discovered, guess what? You are a teacher. Uh, but talk a little bit about the people, the way you t got to go on the cruise as you were teaching voice acting on a cruise where nobody went on the cruise to do voice acting. You were crossing the whole Atlantic Ocean. And that was so interesting to me, how you turned all these cruisers into voice actors. Yeah, in a matter of nine days. <laughs> wow. That was the best, best, best. It was so entertaining because they, they became became your friends and i just love that part of the book yeah, so mean, can, can you talk a little bit about that cruise because it was kind of a turning point for you wasn't it huge right so i was invited to uh, teach on a cruise ship and i was just separated from andre and so i initially said yes to going on the cruise because i really wanted to see how i was going to do just being a single woman traveling and didn't, didn't really think beyond that, except, yeah, okay, you know, I'm going to get a free cruise and I'm going to teach three classes on the ship and, and there you are and I can see how I do. So on the first day of the cruise, I had to go to a meet and greet um, where all the different speakers, etc., cetera, were, were there and nobody came to my table. And I thought, holy crap, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like nobody had any interest in what I was going to be teaching. I thought, this is just the, the biggest mistake ever. Well, um, I had produced a video about voiceover and about voice tracks and what we do. It was like a five minute video. And they did play that video on the TVs in everybody's staterooms. And, but I still didn't know who was gonna actually come to my class. I thought I'd be lucky to get, you know, 10 people since nobody came to the first meet and greet. Well, it, we, it, the people were bursting out of the door. There had to be 60, 70, 80 people. The room was way too small. People were out in the hallways. People were clamoring to get in to take my first class. And I thought, wow, this is really strange. This is really interesting. Why would people from all over the world have an interest in taking a voiceover class if it wasn't going to you know, lead to something, right? And it's just because I could never really accept that what I teach is so much more than voice acting. So I did the first class and anyway, it ended up being ridiculously popular. And I ended up uh, creating a mini voice tracks like in Sausalito because the next thing I knew I was supposed to teach, I think three times when I was on the ship, I ended up teaching every day because there was just, such a demand and I don't know how to say no when I love bringing joy into people's lives and so the next thing I knew I mean the, the the officers were taking classes people were walking up and down on the ship making funny voices you know that people <laughs> had to do and you know I I simulated uh what it's like to do a, a real Hollywood audition at one point we had a contest and um so there was an audition and People were practicing their scripts out by the pool and coming in one at a time to try out and you know, yeah. Oh, what a great, another great story. I'm, I'm sure you have thousands that we'd love to hear. 
But on that note, our guest today on Late Boomers has been Samantha Paris, the voice actor and founder of Voice Tracks, the most acclaimed voiceover academy, as she said, and as other people have said, in the country. Samantha can be found on www.voicetracks with an X sf.com is that correct samantha and findingthebunny.com go on findingthebunny.com and get the link to her book and read a little bit about it thanks so much samantha for being with us thank you guys very much it was fun chatting with you it was great chatting with you thank you so much for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers, eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve one million dollars in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.